0: Hey folks, this is Ian Foster and this is If and When, a podcast where I talk to other creators about how and why they do their thing. To start, I'm talking to colleagues, friends, and veterans of the arts community at home here in Newfoundland and Labrador, Canada. These are not so much traditional interviews as they're a chat over coffee or something a little stronger. So come sit in and have a listen. Hey, everybody. Hope you're doing well. Thanks for tuning in again to another edition of the If and When podcast. So in the time machine of the internet, I'm recording this episode on uh, the last day of May. And right now on the podcast, it's Tara Bradbury week as well as next week. And then this episode is coming out, which is Sean Panting. Thanks for listening. It's been out for a couple of weeks now. Starting to get some cool feedback from folks. I really appreciate the messages people have sent me either on social media or emails. It it definitely makes it all worthwhile, especially in this early stage of just figuring out how it all works, you know, trying to get the information out there. So if you are a fan, uh, subscribing on Apple Music or Google Play or Spotify, sharing that information, rating the podcast, all that stuff helps in getting it into other people's heads or just their eyeballs, really, to see that it exists, and then they can tune in for these conversations with some really interesting folks. So, I really appreciate your attention to the show so far, and, and thanks for the support, and this is going to keep going for, uh, for a while. I have about 18 episodes banked in total, so that will take us through the summer, at the very least, and in, in into the fall, um, and there's some some cool surprises coming up for you. So this weekend, Nancy and I are playing at the Janeway Telethon. This will have already happened by the time you hear this, but I we are stoked for that show. It happens at the Avalon Mall in support of a very good cause. The last time I was at a concert in the Avalon Mall was in the 90s when Brian Adams played Outside the Gap on his way to somewhere else. He did a free acoustic show, And imagine little Ian, very excited to see his idol, getting in line, like last in line in the autograph table with his copy of Waking Up the Neighbors, ready to get Brian's signature. I get to the front of the line. Brian looks at me and he goes, Hey. And little Ian goes, Hey. And Brian goes, How's it going? And little Ian goes, good. And I slide across my copy for him to sign. And he says, what's your name? And I say, Ian. And he says, Dean, and starts to write Dean on there instead. And I go, no, it's Ian. And I scream into Brian Adams' face. And I'm retroactively proud to say, I scared the shit out of Brian Adams that day as a little child. His bodyguard moved a little and was like, oh no, he's just a kid. It's cool. Brian looked startled, signed it. I still have this somewhere in my house. It says I and then the A is a D turned into an A and on the signature. So really all I'm looking for out of this weekend to come for full circle is some little kid to scream to my face and scare the crap out of me. Um, should be good. Should be good. On today's podcast, Sean Panting. I met Sean in the St. John's music scene fairly early on. He was one of the first people I met. uh, One of the nicest as well. Very encouraging from the start. Uh, I remember him telling me uh, about my first band that the thing he liked about us was we played with such passion and conviction, which looking back, I think probably was a very nice way to say we sucked, but we cared. But maybe... We didn't suck and we cared. I'm not sure, but we we chat not specifically about that, I don't think, but we chat about a lot of other stuff when it came to um, songwriting and just how it works. We have a really interesting discussion about how part of what your style is and how you develop your style actually comes from limitation. And if you think about your own life, if you're a musician or another kind of artist listening to this, and how your style developed, there's probably that pivotal period where like three pieces of art in the whole world matter to you. Maybe it was like that super dog-eared book, maybe it was an album that, you know, I remember my first CD was Aerosmith's Get a Grip, and it was the only CD I owned for a couple of weeks, and that's just all I listened to. And I definitely don't sound like Aerosmith in any way <laughs> now, but it's certainly took up all of my psychological space, or there was that mixtape that you passed around that, like, you just wore that tape out, you know? So I think that's a really interesting discussion because now, since so much is just free, not just music, of course, but, like, you can watch any movie. You can download any book. you There's just this flexibility to do that. So I think it's really interesting to try to figure out how that would affect the styles of future coming-of-age artists, will they still just zone in on something and listen to only that? Or will the tech world sort of do that thing that at least it feels like it does to me, where even a show right now that I consume and just love and think about, I just, there's, there's so little time to really dwell on it before the next cool, amazing thing comes along. And that's amazing, where it's amazing we live in a world that... That's possible in, but how much of that actually seeps into our consciousness enough to help shape how we make music, you know? How we make any kind of art, how we think about things. We used to have more time to dwell. Is that a good or a bad thing? Anyway, we get a bit into that, which is... Super interesting, and a ton of other stuff about Sean, his growing up and all that. Sean and I chatted for uh, uh, maybe a record amount of time for this podcast, so it is, as the others, is broken into two pieces, um, the other half coming out next week, so tune in for that, but for now, part one of my conversation with Sean Panting. Hey, Sean. Hello. How's it going?
1: It's great.
0: Thanks for being here.
1: I'm, uh,
0: I'm already super happy. So, that's great. <laughs> well, we're surrounded by some guitars here and some gear. We've already had a gear chat. Yes,
1: very true. Um, Very true. And uh, the great thing with gear now is that it's is that uh, everybody's kind of got some decent gear. Mm-hmm. And they're making these, and, and the uh, stuff is getting more affordable. And, you know, I mean, that's both the good thing and the bad thing, I guess.
0: It's true. It's true.
1: Because more people can make music, more people are. And, you know, not all of them are good.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think like creatively now it's it's tr- like it, you can actually get to the place where it truly is just that. Like in terms of like I think in, in previous years you might have spent a week on trying to get the snare sound that you had imagined once in your head that five people had tried to describe to each other. Yep. And now it's in a place where you're like, "Well, let's just go get that snare sound."
1: Yeah, and that's and and for people who are making something that's for people who are making something that that is it, it, where they ha- they have an idea and they're and they're executing it well and they got some skill and uh, it, you know that's a huge that's a huge time saver and I think a lot of times uh, folks who aren't involved in making music will emphasize the negative when they say things like you know everybody's auto tuned all the time but it's um, and it is possible to do that and and there has been a lot of dreck. Uh, made using these tools but in the hands of somebody who's really who's creative and who's doing good stuff I don't I don't care how they got
0: the result that they got out. I feel the same way yeah yeah I yeah care. I had a, I did a thing in the College of the North Atlantic last week about music production and somebody asked me that question they're like how do you feel about autotune? the classic question of course yeah and I'm like, I, you know, I mean, it's never a simple answer. I don't want to I don't want to know that someone who physically can't do it at all was able to <laughs> do it because of autotune. But I feel like, for instance, like, uh, and I actually don't use autotune. I use Melodyne, but it's essentially the same thing. But it's like if someone plays a guitar part for me, and if you came in and recorded a guitar part and everything was great except the G string was a little flat, yep. I'm probably just going to tune the g-string rather than like because i know that it has nothing to do with how you played the part it's like yeah you know what i mean your guitar came in out of the cold so it was a little out of tune for that minute you know
1: yeah and i and and the idea that it's cheating somehow uh i i think is is ridiculous yeah but like you say you don't like to think that somebody with no talent at all is uh is getting by on this stuff though uh, and but that's always been an argument the technological thing i mean i remember freaking back 20 years or more even like the uh, I saw an interview at one point with uh, with the Chemical Brothers so I mean we're talking 20 years for sure right and you know and stuff had not progressed to this point but already but they you know but sequencers and synths and drum machines and all that had kind of they were very very sophisticated by that point and pretty accessible and the interviewer kind of did this thing where he thought he was putting them on the spot right? Where it's like, well, what would you say to somebody who says, you know, it's not you. You don't do anything. It's just, you turn the machines on. And, uh, one of the buys I thought it was a great response. He didn't get at all angry. He just flipped out. He, uh, he rolled over and he flipped on the uh, master power supply and he said, it's on. What do you hear? <laughs> right? So like in the absence of ideas, yeah, people are going to make crap, but if you got a good idea, man, I, I would rather hear your idea, I would rather hear your idea in time and in tune, and if it, and if you want to use Melodyne to make that happen, I truly don't care.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Now live, if I'm going to see somebody live, uh, I I want <laughs> I want an organic experience. I don't want to watch somebody lip sync. That's not what I pay money for. But, right. But in the studio, Jesus, you know. Yeah. What's the difference between fixing it in Melodyne and doing eighty takes till it's right? There's zero difference.
0: That's true. That's true. And it's the you know back in the Led Zeppelin days, it was like. Robert's a little out of tune. Let's put some more reverb and delay on this until <laughs> it masks it, you know? It's just a better tool to mask it, you know? Yeah. For
1: sure. Yeah. And so and and again, like if the idea is good, great. And if the idea sucks, it can be in tune all day. Totally. You know? Totally. <laughs> Tell me where you're from. Where I am from. Mm-hmm. I am from St. John's, Newfoundland.
0: Cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, give me a little bit about growing up and the, the, the early stuff. First bands, first experiences with why you wanted to make music part of your life.
1: Okay, well, I uh, my parents are what they call here CFA, so they're come from away. Um, th- my parents <clears throat> came from Manitoba in the late 50s um, and uh, settled here, and they really decided, okay, we're not from Manitoba anymore, we're from Newfoundland. Uh, they already had two kids. My elder brothers um, were one and two at the time. And uh, uh, my dad was an academic, uh, among a great many other things. Uh, he was an academic, and I grew up in a house that had a library in it, or more accurately, was a library. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were thousands upon thousands of books in my house, which was awesome. Um, my mother was a fantastic dancer, and a really great singer, really great alto, and was blessed/slash cursed with perfect pitch. So she, uh, so she absolutely hated. <laughs> she absolutely hated a lot of the music that I uh, listened to, <laughs> because she just couldn't deal with the pitchiness of it, uh, and she wasn't a big fan of my voice either for the same reason. Um, I was a late-life oopsie baby, so um, mom was 42 and on birth control pills, proof positive that 99.99% effective is not the same thing (laughs) as 100% effective. (laughs) So um, my brothers were much older, much, much, much older, uh, but they were both uh, musicians, so um, a real seminal folk rock band, uh, Figgy Duff, Mm -hmm. used to practice in my garage. Um, and then on Saturdays, Figgy Duff would be in the garage. And then sometimes uh, Jeff's band, uh, Les Miserables, would be up in the living room playing like deep purple covers.
0: Oh, two. cool. I have Pamela coming in on Wednesday, by the way. <laughs> oh, yeah.
1: excellent. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> but um, uh, so so there was all this mu- all this music around. And I was completely, uh, <clears throat> completely steeped in this uh, stuff. We had a terrible record player. Cause we, uh, I guess it was music was performed, you know, mm-hmm. um, more so than it was uh, listened to. But we had uh, my my parents and my brothers had been to England when the Beatles broke, <laughs> and uh, we and I remember really vividly we had this you know the '70s orange shag carpet, and uh, I remember seeing like Meet the Beatles, like an English pressing of Meet the Beatles, lying on the carpet with a cat on it, you know. It's like, eh, whatever. Yeah. Um and we, yeah, so we had mom had a big collection of Jazz 78s, which got ruined in a flood, which I caused. That was a big thing. Um <laughs> and when Dave and Jeff left home, uh, they left me all of their records. And in the record box was some awesome stuff. So I had like all the folky things that you would expect. I had um uh Plankste and a Scottish band called the Ten Hill Weavers and Steel Ice and Fairport Convention and all that stuff. Um, and I also had uh, like like Pluribus Funk by Grand Funk Railroad. So I'm six at this point. Right. Um, uh, Gumma by Pink Floyd, and uh, Strange Days uh, by The Doors, uh, Billion Dollar Babies, Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention, Freak Out. So this whole like classic rock, Hendrix in the West, all this classic rock stuff. And I would sit in my closet. I had a, um, I had a like a cheapo plastic record player with the speaker on it, and I would sit in my closet and listen to it. And I got really obsessed with um, Sid Barrett era Pink Floyd when I was six. And uh, 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 to the point that my parents were very, they were very hands off about this stuff, but to the point where the Pink Floyd records <laughs> disappeared because I listened to um, I listened to "Arnold Lane" uh, by Pink Floyd probably like seventy times in a row. <laughs> my mom just couldn't deal with it. <laughs> um. Yeah, so, uh, and that was all formative stuff, and I got interested in, and uh, Dad was a big classical music fan, so there's a lot of Berlioz and a lot of Chopin and stuff. Mm. That didn't really sink in too much, but it was sort of part of the background. Mm-hmm. And um, we had a, a a couple of real notable gaps, right? Like, I didn't really hear much of Dylan. Bob Dylan, until I was in my mid-twenties. Right. Because my parents hated Bob Dylan. Mom hated him because he couldn't sing for beans. Mm. And uh, he couldn't play harmonica. And that just drove her nuts. Like, she just couldn't cope with that. Um, And there was a lot of the folk acts that my parents had records of. We could hear the songs, and the songs were great songs. But I didn't hear a lot of Dylan. And I didn't hear a lot of country music, because my parents had no exposure. Mm. I came to appreciate Old school country music. Hank Williams was an exception. There was mm-hmm. a Hank Williams record. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was all this co- stuff kind of swirling around, and I became a giant Rush nerd uh, in grade seven, the way people do. Right. Right. I heard uh, subdivisions, and, it, and my brain <laughs> it exploded. My brain <laughs> exploded. Oh yes, previously I had had um, Genesis's. Uh, selling England by the Pound, right. which I I got sort of obsessed with, and then somebody said, "Oh, if you like that, you'll probably like these guys," and the and I and I listened to uh, Rush for the first time, and it blew my friggin' mind, and I got everything, absolutely everything that they had made up to that point.
0: I don't know why, but I can't stop associating Rush with this one scene in Futurama. <laughs> Where Fry, there's this episode where, like, the video game characters are taking over or something. Right. And Fry's like, I can use my history of being a video gamer to, like, stop them. And he's like, okay, I need my two-liter Pepsi and my All Rush mixtape, and then we can do this. <laughs> it's funny, actually. I was talking to somebody who's a Dungeons &
1: Dragons guy, and uh, and we were having this conversation where it was like, uh, so... He he found all these lead figurines that he had painted when he was a kid. Yeah, and uh, and I said, do you remember what you were listening to musically? You know, at the time, you know. He goes while I'm painting D and D figurines, and I said, yeah. He goes, "Uh, farewell to kings by Rush, obviously. And he was dead right. (laughs) He was dead right. Yeah, of course. If you're gonna paint orcs, you gotta listen to farewell to kings. Yeah. Not you know.
0: I have a buddy who played a video game years ago called Vikings, mm-hmm. and the big criticism of this game was like there was some problem with the score where it was like it didn't always kick in or it was like mixed really low. Different people were like, oh, that sucked. And he was like, no, man, it was fine. I just put on my my Viking metal playlist that was 16 hours long, and it just <laughs> took me through the whole game. <laughs> all right <laughs> that is that's commitment there right I mean you know music's an important part of all our lives apparently it, it
1: certainly is And yeah. well I think for me like having uh, the older brothers thing so I got the classic rock and, and my parents being older than other people's parents mm-hmm. I was getting music from the 40s I was getting music from yeah. you know hopping in the wayback machine for the music and mm-hmm. and and huge exposure to musicals which is really funny mm-hmm. um, uh, sometimes I get funny Looks from people when I'm able to, you know, when when we're talking about the pajama game, and I know (laughs) songs or, or like, you know, the you know you rip off a version of uh, Three Little Maids from School from uh, the Mikado or something at a gig, and people are like, "Uh, what's happening here? Right. Um. The but the huge revelation, like, uh, well, there was a couple of revelations in a row, and one I heard the Ramones. Hmm. Like a lot of people. And I was like, oh, holy shit. Balls. That's amazing. Because 50s rock and roll, uh, uh, 50s rock and roll was big. And I love Chuck Berry because he's a poet. And, you know, the guitar stuff aside, Bo Diddley for guitar, Chuck Berry for, for uh, lyrics. Right. And, um, but yeah, the Ramones, like, there's a frigging game changer. <laughs> it's like bar chords, eh? I thought I had invented them, but no. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> what was it that you remember being most grabbed by? Was it just the energy of it and the, the riffs? or
1: It was kind of the energy and the riffs and how it tied in. Like, it had all that aggression and speed that I really liked. But weirdly, because they kind of have this rep, you know, that they cultivated for being really stupid. But I mean, like... Guess I'm gonna have to tell him that I got no cerebellum. That's not the work of a stupid person. Like th- it's like performance art, you know. Right. Uh, and that th- and that really appealed to me. Um, and because I enjoyed that, uh, 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 local local bands were big for me too. And there was a lot more shows back in my day. There was a lot more shows where you could go all ages. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, around the time that I discovered the Ramones, I also discovered a band uh, called Dogmeat Barbecue. Mm. And Dogmeat uh, were kind of, they rose from the ashes of a band called The Slime, who put out a triple, uh, triple album uh, punk rock opus in like 1977 or 8. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Newfoundland <laughs> so they were right they were right there sort of at the at the beginning of all the of, the of the whole punk thing
0: was that the record that was the, the they bought the discount other records mm-hmm. and then took the record the, took the records out of the record sleeves put their own in and spray painted to slime on the front right? yeah yeah and I which mean, was great brilliant. Like,
1: I mean. DIY stuff right and yeah. Wallace Hammond who's a, a brilliant sound man and all that he was the guitar player and uh, I I really came the thing that I loved about those guys and I think it's where I always wanted to write songs, but I, but up until that point I kind of felt like I had to write songs that sounded like mm, people coming out of you know the big music centers. You know I kind of had this view of what of what that was, and the thing that I learned from Dog Meat is you can just say fuck it. You can sing songs about Gower Street if you mm. want to, mm. and and that was a huge revelation. It's like sure. yeah, I don't need to, I don't need to come up with a, I don't need to come up with a song about New Orleans. I don't right. need, to, you know, I need to come up with a song about New York City. I've never been there. I don't know right. Anything what you about know?
0: Them. Yeah, yeah,
1: and the you know, and like, and and to hear and to hear that and to hear them be so smart and so political and so biting, and also musically just not given a crap. Like, oh, it's, and this is a situation where it's like, oh, it's out of tune? Well, good, for, you know, the guitar's out of tune? Well, good for the guitar, shit. And they, but it was really, uh, it was hugely eye-opening. Because so I'm like, oh yeah, you can you can be funny and be aggressive. Like, y- y- you can sing songs about Newfoundland if you want to. Mm-hmm. And that was very cool. And at the time... Once I was in high school and was playing, so I started when I was fifteen playing pretty regularly downtown, and uh, and sucking so bad. But the um, <laughs> but, but the um, uh, at that time, like circulating the tapes, right? Circulating mixtapes, and oftentimes the tapes would be taped off somebody else, so you wouldn't actually know mm. who you were listening to. <clears throat> so that was my exposure to the whole Indian underground music
0: thing right you, you bring up an interesting point there uh, in the sense that there's a lot of talk about folk music and the evolution of like the Newfoundland identity through that mm-hmm. but not necessarily a lot of talk about all the other genres and the Newfoundland identity and the idea of like singing about where you're from mm-hmm in genres that that's far less common than like the folky genres always kind of based in the geography of wherever the songwriter is from truth yeah but not necessarily rock and roll or not necessarily
1: punk. rock and roll country uh country music as well right like um uh like you know dick nolan or harry hibbs or you know i mean I, harry hibbs i guess is trad music but there's such a thread of country going through all these those old school uh, newfoundland guys mm-hmm. and um yeah like and they, and they were, you know, they had a real sense of identity. I love music that comes from somewhere. Mm-hmm. That's 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 something I really enjoy. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I, I like hearing about the geography and stuff. Um, I've always liked name drops,
0: you know? Yeah. And songs. Like, I totally. always get a kick out of that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And
1: you don't need to be from there or even know what it is to to kind of get it, right? Yeah. Yeah, you, you know? Um, the thing i was thinking about this with with inspire with uh with s- developing style because i was playing guitar i started playing uh guitar uh without a pick mm. so the first three years i didn't play with a pick at all mm. but i didn't do any finger picky type stuff you strummed with the- i strummed with my nails yeah. uh and all that kind of stuff and um and uh And I kind of, and I got, you know, I got into using picks and I, and I sort of developed a style on guitar the way everybody else does, which is, you know, you listen to stuff and that, that stuff gives you ideas and you're influenced by it. But I wonder how that's different now. If I was 15 now having access to every song ever written, whenever I wanted to hear it. Mm. Because to a very large degree, your style, I think, is determined by your technical limitations and your tolerance for boredom. Like, do I want to run scales all day or do I just want to, is this good enough? Yeah. Um, or, uh, uh, and 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 the music that you have access to, to listen to. Right. So, it, it, you know, I had the records that my brothers left behind, that little cache of records, and the fact that um, my mother uh, really liked reggae music. Um, or... Any of these other little influences, or the fact that Jeff Younghusband gave me a tape that had, uh, that had, uh, Hoosker on it, uh, and Dag Nasty on it, and although I didn't know who they were on Big Drill Car mm. and all that stuff. And th- that those individual songs, it's not just that, it's not just that the Ramones shaped who I was as a player, it's that I want to be sedated. Mm. Shaped who I was as a player right and fifty third and third and beat on the brat, but not you know other Ramon songs or right. and, and like yeah, and um
0: that's an interesting point about where things are going. I mean, uh you're totally right. I think that's a really great point about limitation being. Mm. An influence of style. Because, of course, like, I, I deeply relate to that from the perspective of my own guitar playing. Touring for years as a solo player, I was trying to be, ended up being the bass player and the drummer by percussive things. And they were all ultimately, like, I wouldn't have done that if I had a drummer and a bass player. I'd be like, I can strummel onto this. They're forming the groove. They're forming, like, we're forming it as a band. But it's not all up to me.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I never, I... um Sometimes I have played in bands with more than three people, but uh, for very brief periods. And uh, and uh, my my preferred thing to do I have two preferred things, and one is to play alone with an acoustic guitar, or with a drummer and a bass player and one electric guitar. Mm. And everything else, um, I, I I'm not so much a fan. I like it for recording. Right. It's fun. Right. But, uh, just musically speaking, I, I, I would just rather have, I'd rather have all that space. And I think part of that is, like you say, so much time spent as, as an acoustic guitar player and just filling up the spaces and the songs being sort of built on that. Mm. So it's only really lately that that I've, that I've been able to, I'm trying to go back in the other direction a little bit and take up a little bit less space. Because my thing, especially on electric guitar, has always been like, you know, jam it up on roast with the maximum number of amplifiers, and like, <laughs> uh, it was, you know, uh, Chris Batson who played bass with me for years. Um, you know, poor old Chris, Jesus, like, I, I, I kept on like to, to send to getting more frequencies on the go, and just I wasn't leaving him anything at all, and he finally, <laughs> he finally was like, listen, if you don't roll off. Some of the subby bass shit that you got going on, uh, I'm not coming anymore. There's just no reason for me to be here. <laughs> and I got really obsessed with doing that. Right. We had a real chip on our shoulder about about being about not being perceived as heavy enough. Uh, I'm not sure why. Right. Um, so that led us to play too fast a lot. And it led us to play too loud a lot. And it led us to like, you know, do away with subtlety a lot. Right. And I just really, I just really got into it, you know? And it was fun to be, I got, I was a real matter of pride for me. Uh, This was Drive. This was uh, my band for a long time. We got, we did a tour in Western Canada and somebody at a university paper in Calgary or Edmonton or somewhere said, uh, describe my guitar sound as, um, as, uh, the guitarist, the guitarist, help. My head is stuck in a cement mixer full of ball bearings. Guitar sound, and I was like, "Oh, that's so great! Thank you."
0: I mean, that seems to come directly. You could draw a direct line from the punk influences <laughs> of, yeah. of enjoying that.
1: Yeah, and it's it was it's super fun. Like in the end, like rock and roll, there has to be a certain amount of overkill and a certain amount of. Uh, randomness and a certain amount of just kind of cretinous stupidity or else is no fun. Or yeah. else it's no fun for anyone. Yeah. So, you know, that was my that was where the Cretinous stupidity tended to tended to sink in was just like the sonics of it, just trying to be as stupid as possible.
0: Right, right. You know. I think I one of the things I've always enjoyed about your writing is that duality, you know. You're you're not afraid to have a song about a sea monster. And you're not afraid to have, you know, something that is quite confessional and, you know, mm-hmm. kind of deals head on with depression or any of those mm-hmm. subjects, you know. Yeah. Um, how have you, have you balanced that in any sort of deliberate way? Has it just been what's kind of come out?
1: I, uh, yeah, it's, it, it's kind of what comes out. But, um, and again, this is what makes me more of a relic of the past in a way. Cause now we're sort of back to the oddly, we're back to the '50s now in a way where it's singles, it's all singles, single songs. Mm. You know, people selling 45s out of the back of their car. This
0: is where right. this is except where they're not at. selling them. They said they're not <laughs> they selling. They said they're, they're completely free.
1: Except they're completely free, but they're <laughs> producing them a song or two at a time, and yes. people are consuming them that way. But I still write in batches, so I write in album-sized batches, mm-hmm. and every time there's a batch, it's about something. Mm-hmm. And there's a through line. And the thing that I have had to learn over the years is just don't edit. Stop editing. Stop trying to have ideas. Just get out of the way and see what occurs. And it's been and it's really lovely because every time I look back at one of these chunks of songs, I'm like, oh well, that's those are the songs about that period of my life. And these are the songs about that. And it doesn't matter what the subject matter is. Right. It's always about and I would argue that everybody's songs are like that. It's always about you. Um, sometimes I I do a, uh, um, sometimes I do like a songwriting workshop with like uh, high school students. And uh, when I do that, one of the first things that I do, because people are sort of fishing around, they don't know what to write a song about, right? Right. And uh, I take somebody's purse or whatever, and I put it on the table and I say, well, I'm gonna write a song about this purse. Hmm. Um. And, uh, and I go around the table, I'm saying, oh, describe this purse to me Tell mm-hmm. me some things about the purse And everybody chooses subtly different ways to describe this purse And I'm like, see, everybody's got a completely different take on what this purse is about And then we get into writing the song And you discover that nobody's writing a song about a purse,
0: nobody Right. not really yeah that's where it's they start the, someone left them or whatever yeah yeah you know? exactly
1: right so everybody's having feelings and, and that and that's that's where I've tried to take my stuff more so um but a lot of times I have to make a deliberate attempt to fool myself into thinking that I'm writing a song about something stupid so that's so that if I don't edit if I'm careful not to edit uh I'll get five pages of stuff. And then once I take out all the things that are not about, you know, cat toys or ground beef or something, and, uh, the, the stuff that's left over is like, oh, okay, that's what the song's about.
0: Mm, that's a great point. Ron told me once, he's like, a song is a little thing. It's a small, single thing. But it's also a lot more than that, you know? Yeah. And that's, I think that's so, you know, for some reason the, the death cab for Cutie song just popped into my head, the title and registration, the first line mm. that's on, the glove compartment is inaccurately named and everybody knows it. Yeah. You know, and it's such a simple, really, like it sounds, it's like the purse thing. It's such a mundane thing that we've all been like yeah the glove compartment reach for it you know that's a clever line and then of course the song is like a very broad song really thematically about love and relationships failing but really it's a guy talking about a glove box is where it starts yep. you know
1: but wherever you start it's you starting that's that's how i've that's how i feel about it it's like i i cannot help but write a song about what's going on in my life so it's kind of, uh, it's liberating in the sense that you don't need to wait for inspiration because you're always, the interior monologue is always going on. So often if I sit down, I try not to be, uh, try not to have ideas for songs. Like, n- not exactly. What what I'll do is I'll write a song, I'll, I'll sit down, and I just pick a place to start. Right. And I'll start writing a song about truly anything at all and it won't st- and it won't stay about that. Like I can start writing a song about the curtain rod and have done a couple of times for whatever reason. The there's a curtain rod in our in our living room and you just start there. Yeah. And then a couple of words fall out and you go, oh excellent, excellent. Non-curtain rod related words and they just fall out. And if you let them fall out and enough of them fall out, then I always picture like a blank I guess, page, I guess, or screen or whatever. And then um, words kind of show up in position on those, on the page. So it's like, oh, these words go at the top here and these words go in the bottom. Yeah. And it's kind of in this shape. It has this shape. And I go, and um, and I love things like rhyming dictionaries. Because again, you oftentimes I don't use the rhymes to come out of the rhyming dictionary. I just flip through. And see what words kind of light up.
0: I've done that too. Yeah, I love that. It's great. Yeah,
1: and and so it doesn't matter where you start because you're always going to end up in the same place, which is writing a song about how you feel, and 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 it ends up being way better than going because in the co-write situation, sometimes it's really artificial in that we're going to write a song about
0: I know the you know and. And it's really, I find it really. I left a session like that once. I just couldn't, yeah. I couldn't do it. You know, yeah. not to be arrogant about it. I just couldn't. It just felt like it was a completely pointless venture. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah,
1: and because you're not, because there's, there's, you're not give, you're not given any of yourself. Like you're not, you're not in, you're not, you're not going to be invested in this thing at all. I find, I do find it a little strange, but like. I I always enjoy a song where you come at the subject from a from a slightly skewed angle, you know. And I'm always happiest when that happens. Right. Like, um, I have a song "Panic Steers" that I thought was about being afraid of hitting a moose, mm-hmm. and it's about autism. Like, right. Like, you know,
0: that's just talk to me more about that song. You know, we've talked about this a few times off yeah. mic. I'm a fan of this song. Um, tell me more about it.
1: Um, okay. Well, I have a son who is now 11. He, uh, he's on the autism spectrum, but he was very young when I wrote this and he was nonverbal, uh, at the time. Uh, now he won't shut up, which is great. Um, and he's doing very well, you know, it was, it was excellent. And, uh, but I didn't really know what to expect. And, um, that was all sort of in my mind and I was driving, uh, down uh, we had a really terrible van. We had a we had a succession of really terrible vans, uh, and this van, the Montana, a van with a stripper name, the Montana, and and um, uh, we were going down the moosiest strip of highway in all of Newfoundland, which is uh, the Bonavista Peninsula, and um, I did not realize that one of my headlights was burned out until the other headlight burned out, <laughs> mm. and. Stupidly, uh, it's um, in this situation. The first thing that happens in my head is, "Oh, this is interesting. I'll write a song about this, I guess." <laughs> As I'm trying to like drive down the road, um, and the and the first thing that popped into my head was "Through the Dark." Uh, my panic steers. Yeah, and I thought I was writing a song about hitting a moose, and I wrote all these words down. I wrote all this stuff down. There's verses. There's verses to that song that are about that actually have the word moose in them. They have car in them. They have headlight in them. They have all this stuff. Right. Um, but once I looked at it all, there were just these chunks that were not about that. And I stuck and I put them all together and went, oh my god, there it is. Right, And that's your, that's your mind telling you something. Um, and that happens a lot. Like, um, I wrote a song called zero down, which is, you know, it's a, as a song, it's certainly not, uh, it's not a tremendous song or anything, but I was really, um, I was surprised by it because it's a song about buying a washer dryer and what it's really, (laughs) what it's really about is deciding I'm going to get married. Um, and it was like ah oh, this is a test this is a test for us this is a thing we can't put in the back of the car and drive away from right. like ah we own a house oh my god we own a washer dryer like i would need a moving truck now to get out of this right. and do i want to and no i don't and and so i learn stuff about myself all the time yeah <laughs> by just writing songs about you know about and it's
0: it's interesting cuz i i've i've thought about your lyrics over course over the course of many albums, and it feels like there's one of the big themes for you is is about um, I, I guess the the slog of being a musician or understanding how that fits in your life and and why I say that like I think about even Panic Steers, which I know is is about your son, but the very first time I heard it, the idea of like through the dark, my Panic Steers, grand designs and grim careers, uh, yep. hauling the gear up Solomon's Row. Yep. Uh, Everybody knows it's over, but me—I don't. That's probably not about that. But no, it like, is, I just mean—is it about, okay?
1: Well, it's about a lot of things. Yeah, right? it's about a lot of things. Yeah. that's one of the things it's about. Yeah. So
0: I'd like to hear you talk about that. That's fascinating to me because we've talked about uh, as every single songwriter in the whole fucking world has talked about like the the struggle of what it is like how to make sense of the nonsensical element of being a musician who plays for a living like obviously that's something you've done a lot and thought a lot about
1: yeah and feel and you feel really i think every musician comes to this point where uh, you know it just feels really stupid like you know you're standing there on stage particularly bar gigs you know standing there on stage being ignored singing songs about whatever and and you reach this unesca- this inescapable thing where you're like I'm just I'm just I'm hitting this box with strings on it I'm saying these words into this microphone right like what the hell am I what the fuck is this yeah it makes no sense and oftentimes for me as well like the songs will then fall apart I'm like is this music is this mm. a song it's not even a song I don't think I think I'm just talking While I play this thing on the guitar, and you really get inside your own head about it, and yeah, uh, there's there's a part of there's a part of me, and I don't know whether that's the way we're programmed, because we're taught that uh, art is uh, useless, Mm -hmm. and you know, you know, especially now that songs are free, like. Not only are they f- their being free makes them not worth anything if you see what I mean mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right um, so it just the whole thing just feels kind of ridiculous sometimes but but the conclusion I always reach is uh, it's important because it's important to me, I guess
0: right, right <laughs> like it can't
1: be imp- if it's not important to anybody else and I and and I think that's I think like us like Solomon's row say it's like okay, well, this this feels ridiculous, but you know what? Uh, the, this is what I'm working with. This is I, I, it's important to me for some reason I can't explain. So let's do it.
0: Yeah. You know? Well, yeah, we keep trying to explain it. That's the challenge. Yeah. You know, <laughs> Calem was here, and mm-hmm. he I asked him the impossible question. Of like what makes good song, you know, Mm -hmm. not that I think that anyone will ever have the answer, but it's just funny to watch people squirm trying to. And sometimes good things come out of that. And in his case, I thought the cool thing that he said was uh, and and yet frustrating thing he said was, you know, it's it's the belief in it by the person performing it. And I understood what he meant in the sense that it's the X factor of a song. I, I think that someone can believe in a objectively bad song. Right. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, and, and and that won't save the song. But I think that it, if it's a it's if it's a objectively great song and someone doesn't believe in it, it still doesn't work. And so I understood his logic of like by that logic, you like the thing that will always hold mustard and push something a little bit further is the is the believing in it, you know, yeah. uh, and how fucked up that can be for a musician because I've experienced exactly what you said a second ago when you're yeah. sort of like, you could so easily spiral and be like, well, I believed in these songs, but now like that you can get on stage and get into a space where you're like, I'm losing the vibe or whatever word you want to put to it. And it can be that sort of thing where you're like, where is the conviction behind this? What does this mean? You know?
1: Yeah. And it all feels pretty silly, especially, especially when you have... Like especially when there's big life stuff going on, yeah. Uh, at, at a time actually when I think it's the most important to be, uh, to to create, to be creative, and to do what you do, and to be yourself. Like in, in big moments of crisis, like I, I think that's I think it's really important to keep on keeping on. But those are the points where it feels really silly. It's like, well, this is just this is ludicrous. I'm not curing cancer here. I'm just mashing this guitar and yelling about whatever the hell yeah and it's um and that's that's (laughs) that's uh, and you gotta uh, and you know i mean i think that's inevitable and i imagine that you know plumbers feel that way or you know professors feel that way of course a lot of people feel that way i guess but there you go
0: so uh, what what do you think this sounds like a really elementary question about like what drove you to do this blah 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 but in the context of what we're talking about I think that that's an interesting discussion because doctors, plumbers, you know, all Mm -hmm. these things. I mean, there's a banality to every job, no matter what job it is. Musician is a job, you know. But it's a job with a lot more uncertainty. It's a job where, you know, a plumber is not uh, uploading a video of his work to the internet and asking people to comment on (laughs) the comment section on what he does. Like it is different in that way. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And and certainly, uh, you know, plumbers' rates are typically not uh, deeply negotiable to the point (laughs) of uh, play plum for exposure, you know, or whatever. So there's a lot of challenges to this that are different than other jobs. So what is the, what's the, what will was the mitigating thing for you that was like uh i you know i i want to do this i mean i'm sure there was the obvious it's fun but like that dies away what well, doesn't die that sounds wrong it it's dies done, yeah. away it's all gone no i just mean like you know it's it, the fun there has to be something to sustain in the long term of being a career musician so like what is that what is that thing uh i feel like i did not have a choice because
1: everything else that i tried to do to to, and I did, in fact, try because uh, I <laughs> uh, I was very I was good at school. Mm-hmm. You know, I test well in school <laughs> uh, and, you know, having a having a father who's a professor, you kind of understand how to I learned really well how to get the information that I need out of books and stuff that that was, you know, important. And so, and I, and that was fairly easy for me. So, and, um, uh, so I thought, oh, well, maybe I'll just become a teacher or maybe I'll just become an academic, you know, mm. I don't need to do this music thing because I'd seen my brothers, you know. I'd seen, my, you know, my brother sleeping in the van and all that crap. Mm-hmm. And um, and I saw what it did to my parents and I don't want my parents to worry, you know. They're they're nice folks and they <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh and there was a part of me that wanted to be uh something else. Right. And uh, after university, I applied to a bunch of schools, and um, after I got a philosophy degree, and you know the job offer is going to be rolling in there. I got a philosophy <laughs> degree, and then um, I applied to a bunch of things, and I got accepted uh, to a couple of law schools, and I got accepted to a journalism program, and I took all the materials that I was mailed out, and I set them on the dining room table, and one by one, I tossed them in the garbage. Hmm. Because I couldn't get, I just couldn't get excited about it. Right. I I I couldn't get excited about it, mm. and uh, you know, I, uh, so I felt like I really didn't have a choice. But sell so, but um, having ideas and communicating them is is what I like to do. So, some mostly that's manifested itself in music, but but other times I'll write stuff or uh i do it as an actor you know and i think a lot of musicians are like that i think a lot of musicians um
0: who does one thing yeah yeah nobody especially
1: not around especially not around here Mm -hmm. in st john's you know Mm -hmm. but like a guy like dave bedini from the Rio statics like dave likes to dave likes writing songs but he just kind of likes writing things in general. So he's got a, he he's got this thing about newspapers. He loves newspapers and he loves writing newspaper articles and he likes writing books. But basically, he's doing all the same stuff, which is, I have an idea. What's the best way to communicate this? What's the best platform to use? And I and he pushes it out that way. And I guess I do a little bit of that,
0: right? Yeah, right. I mean, it's deeply freeing to think of it that way, right? The idea that writing a song is, is just one of those one tier of your creative yeah. overall output you know it's it's one one way that you you get your yayas out of many you
1: yeah know? well and I feel really lucky to have grown up here um in St John's the uh, a cool thing with St John's uh for me growing up was anybody who was really nasty and ambitious or left and went to Toronto Um, and the people, of the people who remained here, um, and, you know, we all left the island and did the tours and stuff, but the people who wanted to stay here as their home base, um, realized, I think, that there was no brass ring and therefore no competition. Mm. So I found it to be a really cooperative community and pretty accepting And also you could kind of in the arts community where it was really vibrant, but also population wise, kind of small, um, you could you could do various stuff and work in various media and nobody really penalized you for that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you get you get dancers who would start a band or you'd get, uh, you know, you'd get people who were musicians becoming actors constantly and, uh, you know, people writing, you know people writing books if they felt like writing books, or people writing a play if they felt like writing a play, or people doing art installations if that's what they felt like doing. Mm -hmm. And so it was really, uh, there wasn't a whole lot of restriction put on what you could do. Whereas um, I I recall when uh, Republic of Doyle, when I was a regular on that show, I tried to get an agent in Toronto and not to crap on Toronto. Toronto's a fine place. It's just different, and the um and she was confused by that. And her question was always, "Well, what are you?" And I was like, "Well, you know, I'm a musician and I'm an actor and I do sound design and I write and yeah, what what like <laughs> just it's not a it's not a problem. Yeah, but she she's like, oh, I can't sell that. If you're an actor, you're an actor. And if you're not fully an actor, then you're not an actor. And it was weird because it's not like that. It's really not like that here. And that's just, that's economics.
0: Sure. You know, economics. And that's it for part one of my conversation with Sean Panting. Tune in again next Thursday. Every Thursday we release an episode of this podcast. That'll be part two. And we'll see you then. Thanks so much.